Lonely Monk Productions. I don't know if y'all have heard Prime by Christian McBride's new John yet, but yo! That's my John! That's my John! Hey, yo, displace the guilt and- What's good, friends and family, neighbors near and far? Welcome to an all-new episode of the Yo, That's My John podcast. The podcast, website, brand, movement, way of life dedicated to the embrace and championing of your passions. I am your host, Nate Runkle, a.k.a. Jonathan Majors, a.k.a. Nate 3.0, back at it again with yet another episode of the podcast. As always, I hope this podcast finds you all in good health and in good spirits. On today's episode, I have an amazing conversation with Kevin Allison, creator and host of the storytelling live show slash podcast, Risk. And it is a long chat, so I don't want to dilly-dally too much here, but you know I gotta check in with my peeps. How are we all doing? I know you're probably saying to yourself right now, wait, wasn't this supposed to be an off week of the podcast? Well... Sure it was. But when the opportunity presented itself to talk to Kevin ahead of the Philly date of his risk show, I jumped on it without any hesitation. I have been an enormous fan of MTV's The State, of which Kevin was a member, ever since the very first time I watched it back in the early 90s. So much of my comedic sensibilities can be traced back to every member of that cast. But even more so than how much I love that show, I have always been in awe of the show he created, Risk. Not just as a collection of brutally honest and compelling storytelling, but as a space where people can share, out loud, with impunity, the kind of stories and topics that are usually reserved for close friends or therapists or maybe never even shared at all. You know, I truly believe that what Risk does is so incredibly important in giving not just an outlet to share the things that we don't normally talk about, but a place to hear stories and experiences that we may be going through and may feel that we're alone in and don't have the permission to discuss. You know, it can be incredibly hilarious and hauntingly tragic or beautifully profound and ridiculously silly. And it shows that all of those things can coalesce and exist on the same stage, frequently in the same night. So yeah, I am incredibly excited to bring this conversation to you today, and I really hope you enjoy it. So, in a minute, after a very quick break, my conversation with Kevin Allison. My guest today got his start as a member of the legendary sketch comedy troupe The State, the cult classic that aired on MTV from 1993 to 1996. Then, in 2009, he created Risk, the live show and weekly podcast where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share in public. It was a DIY passion project that he started in his bedroom and has since gone on to grow to have millions of downloads a month and has featured stories from folks like Janine Garofalo, Mark Marin, Aisha Tyler, Trevor Noah, Margaret Cho, and coming this April, yours truly. He is also the founder and lead instructor of The Story Studio, a storytelling school which offers classes around the USA and online and corporate workshops domestically and internationally. This Thursday, March 2nd, you can catch him bringing the Risk Live show to Philadelphia at the World Cafe Live. 
Folks, it is my honor to welcome to the show, Kevin Allison. Ladies and gentlemen, I am joined today by the great Kevin Allison. Kevin, thank you for joining me on Yo, That's My John. Ah, it's so great to be here. Thank you. So I always like to tell everybody uh, a little connection piece I have uh, with them. And uh, something came up very recently um, with you um, that you play a very important part in my life with. Um, and, and I didn't know until recently. So um, do you ever have one of those quotes that you like just quote all of the time and you know it's a quote from somewhere, but you've used it so much you've lost where it came from? <laughs> So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So a friend of mine, Sean, has been working on this project where he's been trying to edit all of the original music cues back into the state sets um, because, oh. because of the licensing. So, yeah, he's. Um, oh, wow. He's he's talked to David about it and stuff like that because he's been trying to track down certain music, like tiny little snippet music clues that he can't figure out. Right, so he put That's a master fabulous. list. He put a master list together of all the missing clips and sent them out to friends. And he sent one to me to try to identify some. And one of the ones he couldn't figure out was. Um, uh, I just whispered your name by Harry Connick Jr. from the rideshare uh, um, uh, sketch. Yeah, 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 from Dream Boy. Dream Boy, that was it, yes. <laughs> uh, you, and, you and Carrie driving in the car. And I'm watching the clip trying to, uh, trying to see the music cue he wanted, and it gets to the part where you have the sock puppet on your hand. And you, and you do, I'm not liking you. And I have been doing that for, I guess, over 20 years now and completely forgot where it came from. So thank you. There's a long story, that but thank you for that. That is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. When, when the state, when my sketch comedy group from college got our own show on MTV, they really insisted that we include as much music from their music catalog in the show that we wallpaper it with all this music from all the stuff that they had copyrights to show on the air. Uh, little did we know they didn't have the copyrights to like then preserve those shows and like, you know, like distribute them later. It was just for like live airing was all they had the rights for. So, ah, God, it was just yet another one of those things where Viacom was just really like screwing things up by cutting corners because, you know, we were so hesitant to, you know, uh, uh, we, we loved Monty Python and we also loved like The Muppet Show and Sesame Street. Like we, 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 we had no comedy education, right? So we just went with shit that we were exposed to as children on TV, you know? And that stuff is generally, especially the Pythons, timeless. It's not, oh, we're going to imitate this popular culture figure and we're going to, you know, just, you know, like I, I still today cringe all the time when I see, you know, like on SNL or whatever, just bringing someone on dressed like someone else and saying something they said on TV earlier that week. It's like, okay, great. You know? Uh, so we were trying to do more archetypal stuff that would last forever. And I think a lot of it, uh, well, I think 
I, I think most of it really still holds up. I haven't, I haven't seen it very recently, but, but I think most of it still really holds up. But it's a shame because we were so hesitant to actually make pop culture references the way they wanted us to. But we were like, well, fuck, yeah, we'll use all that music. You know, we had a blast yeah. with that. In fact, it was me, it was my idea to for the soundtrack to the promo for our second season, which really kind of finally put us over, you know, was the tipping point of us kind of finding some popularity, which was, you know, our first season was so horribly reviewed by TV reviewers who were just, you know, of an older generation and did not get our kind of, young inside just the chemistry of kids fooling around uh and so our first season it was just as good as the next three but the critics didn't get it yet so we could just got horrible you know so terrible it deserves to be studied you know uh the daily news in new york suggested that we were maybe the worst thing that had happened in the history of tell of broadcasting um and so we decided to take these quotes and run them on the screen while we're shown in tremendous depression, our ha our, uh, our, we're hanging our heads and we're skipping stones in a river and we're, we're looking rather suicidal. And you use the Bee Gees. Uh, I started a joke uh, that started the whole world laughing, you know, <laughs> that, that song. <laughs> love i love a lot of those you know like 60s songs that are like so maudlin like another one a lot like that is gilbert o'sullivan oh, with yes. that song, <laughs> it's that song. It, it, i think it's about he's gonna end his life at the end of the song but anyway yeah when people us making fun of ourselves with the i started a joke it's called more miserable crap is what the what the ad campaign is known as and uh somehow that just started to make things click for us people were like I, because i think people were not used to at that time ironic marketing you know yeah. uh so it was super cool yeah 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 it's, um and there were a lot there were a lot go oh, on sorry go oh, on no no you go yeah you go. don't let me stop you you go <laughs> Yeah, no, there were lots of sketches on the state that were kind of inspired. Like there, the whole Barry and Levon thing that the the sketch uh, two hundred forty dollars worth of pudding um, that really just came from us sitting around. Because what you would have to do, you would have to look through these giant notebooks of catalogs, which kind of looked like um, if you go to a karaoke bar. You'll get a big binder and just look at lists of songs. And uh, there was a whole bunch of those uh, because, you know, they had a lot of just like what weren't even really videos, but like clips from stuff like, oh, I don't know, the monkeys or the Beatles or whatever back in the day, uh, you know, a hard day's night or whatever. Um, and <laughs> one day we were just like, give us everything you have from what what is his name george what what's the name of the singer the soul singer was like baby very oh, white very white yeah. <laughs> yeah so we were just loving the barry white songs and out of that the barry and Vol levon sketch was born 
of everyone just walking around talking like uh, Barry White all day one day. <laughs> it's <laughs> which, which as an all white group, we might not get away with today. <laughs> I don't like. It's really funny, and you know, I think that's one of the 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 craziest things is like uh, I know when I look back at the things I did essentially in college, there's stuff that I will pray remain buried. But like, uh, but like yeah, the, yeah, sh- yeah, yeah, the yeah. show you guys did, like, still is hilarious and. There, I can't think of anything that's too cringy in it. Um, in the last time I rewatched it, like it's it's all from a good place. Yeah, it's very you know. I always thought of us it's kind of similar to Python as having a sort of kiddish energy, sort of a, like a childish, playful energy, but from a very uh, creatively intelligent place. You know, like, similar to the Pythons in their very British way. Um, it's very smart, but it's also incredibly kiddish. You know, it, it's got it's it's kind of a, a, a harmless in a lot of ways. I, you know, at the time I was twenty three years old when when we were on TV, and my I come from Cincinnati, Ohio, and you know I was born in the seventies, and, and Cincinnati was like the most sex negative town <laughs> north of the Mason Dixon line. That is where the Larry Flint trial and the Maplethorpe trial and just, you know, whenever something like hair or Equus or whatever would come to town, it, the theater would be raided and all that, you know, if there was any nudity in a play. So it's just a very, very conservative Roman Catholic town. And I was so happy to get out of there. And, you know, I came out to my parents as being gay a week before going to NYU. I mean, oh. it's like I I made sure that the that all the student plan. loans were going to happen and that the plane ticket was good. And, and then I was like, all right, I'm going to come out. But when uh, whenever a new episode of the state would come out, I'd get a call from my mom and she'd be beside herself about some joke in the show that was sexual or referred to religion, to Christianity in any way. And it's so funny because whenever I tell people, you know, like it was, it was upsetting to be able to, to have to deal with a parent who was so upset at your work week after week. But whenever I tell that to people, they're like, Oh my God, that, that, that show was not like <laughs> rude or pushing the envelope so much with all those things. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's where I'm from. <laughs> it's true. You know, it, and, and like it, one of the things that I think um, uh, kind of comes through there and, and, and it might be part of the kind of NYU connection is that like it's 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 very kiddish and stuff like that, but so smart. Like it, 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 it's yeah. almost like, like a, like a Marx Brothers kind of humor in that, like, it's just dumb people in a very straight world, you know, like, you know, what's, you know, what is so funny about your saying that is it's, or about both of us saying this is it's only occurring to me now that the very first skate state sketch that was ever performed was child linguistics 101 which never we never did for television i I was not in the state when they did their first show the group was called the new group when we were at nyu and uh the very first sketch 
was supposed to be a college class taught by Michael Showalter, playing the professor, who was teaching the kids child linguistics. So it was all, you know, uh, you know, you're rubber, I'm glue, and poo-poo and pee-pee. You know, it was all these ridiculous, you know, uh, us being able to unpack in an intellectual and academic way all these absurdly childish things. And that really, I think, set the tone for, for, for what we were doing from then on. <laughs> oh, it's so great. And, and like, mm. uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's such a, uh, such a staple of kind of our generation um, that, that like whenever I mention it to anybody, everybody's got at least one sketch. They remember one quote that they've been using forever. Like it really stands the test of time. And it, it's, it's a shame that the, music rights kind of dicked things up for as long as they did you know like that's it's the same thing that happened to so many good shows like uh you said you're from cincinnati wkrp had the same problem when they were trying to do home video oh did they oh no that makes sense because they're the radio station and they were always just playing songs in the background so like it's so weird man and it was so beloved back in the day and you're right like you don't you, you don't see it represented all that much anymore um yeah and you know like i think beavis and butthead had a terrible time w- with all that sort of thing as well so you know it, we're every time we talk about the possibility of reuniting the good news is that i guess paramount now owns all that stuff and i think that they you know, have expressed, oh, yeah, if you guys ever reunite to do something like that, we'd be thrilled with that. And the reason I'm excited about that idea is that our sketch, we deliberately, like it was a very conscious decision that brevity is the soul of wit. We were very like annoyed with like SNL and Mad TV having like sketches that went on for six or seven minutes. So a lot of our sketches like could could with a little bit of editing be turned into TikToks and be reintroduced to a new generation. You know, it, it, if push comes to shove with anything like that, I don't know. I mean, I really don't. I don't know how realistic it is about us possibly reuniting because we've got eleven different careers and lives, and oh, there's still. There's still so much love between the group. I mean, we text each other. We have a ridiculous text thread all the time of total nonsense to this day. But um, but there's still also that a, a lot of the dysfunctional the dysfunctional family dynamics between us, where you know you you, you think to yourself, okay, it would be really really fun to, <laughs> to reunite and do like I don't know ten or twelve or whatever episodes. Um, but it would also be like, oh my God, are, are all the old tensions and that gonna, you know, the rivalries and whatnot. Oh, I don't know. It's, it's great. All those patterns. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, uh, I would, I would love it is something like that happened. Um, this is the worst segue ever, but let's, let's rewind a little to you as a, as a kid. Were you, were you, sometimes you just give up on it and you're just like, eh, the segue is not there. I'm just going to do it. Uh, Just take it by the horns. Uh, You know, I, I heard Carlin do that. Last, um, summer I was listening to like all of Carlin's 
records and specials and it was it was quite a trip to like what oh it's because there was that documentary that came out oh, on yeah, hbo sure. the other yeah and um yeah i really got a kick out of it when occasionally he would be like i don't do segways so here's the next yeah. thing <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just gotta go for it um were, were, you, were you were you a um were you a theatrical child were you like you know as a kid and holy shit yeah, 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 yeah. It's so funny. Like, so many of the stories that I tell on Risk and wherever I tell stories are about my childhood. You know, for the longest time, I thought that the crux of my whole life story was the fact that I realized I was gay kind of at the beginning of being able to use language, you know, but like I, I I was well aware of what the words gay and fag meant by the time I was five and, you know, re was really terrified that I was, you know, going to go to hell and that if anyone found out I'd be ostracized from my family and friends. And, and at the same time I was having a hard time, like trying, you know, to pray the gay away and all that nonsense um but also you know in my adulthood i have been diagnosed with severe adhd and the more i learn about that i'm like oh my gosh those two things together successfully made me feel like i am from another universe i'm in another universe than everyone else and there's a lot of like low low-key, low-simmering trauma around feeling like that as a kid, you know? And <laughs> part of the result is becoming a comedian. You know, like the very first day of kindergarten, I, the you know, well, first of all, I was, I, I remember waiting in line to go into kindergarten, you know, a single file line to go into our classroom. And a kid pointed at me and started laughing and I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. They're already like bullying me or making fun of me. And he said, why is your hair orange? And then another kid said, it's not orange. It's red, red, like the head on the dick of a dog. And they're both <laughs> laughing and everything. And I thought to myself in that moment, Oh, thank God. They, it's, they're not, they're not suspecting I'm gay. <laughs> They're distracted by the hair. Yes. <laughs> and then later that day, toward the end of the day when it was time for a little nap, you know, and remember like you would get like a little thing of milk and a cookie and take a little nap. And I started doing this little routine. The teacher had left a giant stapler of hers on my desk. And so we all have our heads down. And I saw across the room, there was this little girl who was able to see me with her head down. And I started motioning to her as if I was, you know, it's kind of like a Buster Keaton or, or a Charlie Chaplin Lotsey, where I was acting like I was going to, uh, you know, like pound this stapler down on my thumb, you know, like, whoop. And then would stop at the last minute. And she was dying. She was dying. And then I, it, it felt so good because it was like this eureka moment of this is how, this is how I can charm people. And, and, you know, I can make people feel like, oh, he's weird, 
but weird in a way that uh, we enjoy. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I knew they'd find out I was weird inside eventually. But if you can make people laugh at you on your own <laughs> devices before they're laughing at you, you know, for their own reasons, you're you're ahead of the game. So finally, I like got so carried away that I fucking drove a, a staple through my thigh. I I lost control of the bit. <laughs> I drove a stable into my thumb. And then, of course, I was in trouble and it was a whole thing. But it's funny. I really don't remember like the fall, the fallout. I don't remember like feeling like traumatized about being held back or, you know, uh, whatever had to go down with my parents or whatever. Uh, but what I, re- I still remember, I've never forgotten how excited I was to have been like, ah, I can make. I can make them laugh, you know, and uh, by the time I got to the first grade on day one, the teacher said, oh, (laughs) you're the class clown. And I had never heard that phrase before. And that was like a badge. She she did not mean for it to be a badge of honor, but that's how I took it. Yeah. So, yeah, I became I was obsessed with records like uh the assumption in the family was that I would, I mean, even among me, even with me, go into music because, oh my gosh, I was so obsessed with records before I could really even talk. My mom tells a story of going over to our cousin's house and just pointing at their stereo. You know, whenever we would go somewhere, she would be like, just, just, give him some some records and a record player and and he'll he'll be fine you know and just um listening i remember there were certain records like the original cat not the original cast recording but the original album project uh version of jesus christ superstar and free to be you and me and meet the beatles you know there were so many uh records that were just so just took my mind in so many different directions when i was a kid that i was obsessed with it and at one point i thought who do i want to be when i grow up i thought maybe donny osmond it's <laughs> a good choice because yeah. i used to yeah i used to watch like sunny and Cher and donny and marie there were all those very musical variety shows back then which we which we really don't have so much anymore i think they still do have them in some other countries but yeah i mean uh i uh i was kind of in love with music and then you know when i was in the seventh grade oh you know it was when i was 10 years old so that would have been the fifth grade my father he really started to see he had so I was one of five children, right? And my father had two passions, two hobbies that he was most obsessed with. Uh, football, which my two older brothers loved as well, and opera, which literally no one in the family other than me would resonate with that, right? So he was like, oh my gosh, this one. I can take to the opera, you know? So when I was around about seven, he took me to an opera for the first time. And then when I was 10, for my 10th Christmas, he gave me Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. 
And that was like earth shattering, you know? Sure. I mean, I had no... Yeah, I had known Meet the Beatles, like the you know the original, the their first record, the repackaging of it for the United States with the Beatles is the real name of it in Britain. Um, but you know, obviously, Sergeant Pepper's is <laughs> from another universe than their than their first songs. Um, so I just was like, got so immersed in that, and then in the seventh grade. I was in a screaming match with my older brother, Dave. He was listening to records upstairs. And my older brothers by that time had really gotten into the dazed and confused era. I mean, they had a killer stereo with huge speakers and just a ton of records. And he, my brother, Dave was just obsessed with Dylan and I was in a screaming match with him and this and Dylan was singing uh, the song uh, My Back Pages, which has the line, ah, but I was so much old. Yeah, ah, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. And I yelled at my brother and listen to this bullshit. Like th- th- this guy's lyrics don't even make any sense. <laughs> and even as the line was coming out of my mouth, I probably didn't say bullshit. You know, was, I was uh, so young. But even as the line was coming out of my mouth, I was like, wait a minute, that that is an interesting, <laughs> that is actually <laughs> yeah. an interesting line. And so that's when I became completely obsessed with Dylan. I was not allowed in my brother's room, but whenever they were not around, I would go up there and listen to their records and then hunt around for their weed, not to smoke it, but just to be like, oh my gosh, they do this, you know? Uh, so, yeah, that was my musical upbringing. My father introducing me to all kinds of like mostly classical opera, but, you know, also some very creative stuff like the Beatles and my brothers with all that they were into. Yeah. The um, um, and, and so. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's not. did you did you ever think about go- doing music? Was that ever a thought oh, or was it just. Well, <laughs> it's funny. In the 10th grade, I joined the boys' choir, um, and it was serious, old church music. In fact, I went to the Royal School of Church Music Boys' Choir Camp when I was 10 years old in Princeton, New Jersey, on the campus there. It was this Church of England, this Anglican, whatever, choir teaching academy would come over to Princeton in New Jersey on their campus and hold a little choir camp. And now all these years later, I'm like, Oh my God, like I'm sure I, I I think I've heard of incidents of boys being molested and stuff like that. So I'm like, Oh wow. I was, I was really, um, you know, I, I think that I was so aware of things that something like that couldn't happen to me because we then went to New York city to perform at St. John's uh, by Mo- on the same block that MoMA is on to perform. You know, that was like the end of choir camp was to go to New York and perform at St. John's and, or is it St. Thomas? I can't remember, but anyway, uh, seeing New York city in 1980, 
was also just so stunning because my choir director, the only place he could have us stay is with the former choir director who had taught at our school before, who had since moved to Chelsea and had a lot of very eccentric friends. (laughs) So we're sleeping in this loft in Chelsea, and I remember Robert Love came over with his gigantic afro playing his funk music on the stair. All the cigarettes they were smoking (laughs) smelled very weird. Everyone was wearing, like, crop tops or these very tight white pants and... uh, So I was very aware, as opposed to, I think, the other choir boys. I was like, oh, these men are gay, gay, gay. (laughs) And I'm getting to see. And, you know, it was really sad because, you know, while I was in high school, I had lunch with my old choir director. And I said, hey, whatever happened to Robert Love and all those guys? And he was like, oh, they did not make it. You know, like he was like that whole crew. Yeah, was wiped out by by the plague back then. So, yeah, it was it was fascinating that I got this little glimpse into New York City in 1980, right before gay life in New York City became so um, hard for so many people, you know. Um, But that, that, you know, I'll never forget it. That was a very special little window into that era. Yeah. Was that was that the the moment you knew that's where you wanted to go to school or to to get away from? Oh, or? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Because I had seen in Time Magazine, I think it was 1977 or 78. They had a uh, edition of Time that was called The Homosexuals. What's that? What's that? <laughs> and it was an image of two male hands holding. And there was an image inside a gay bar in that article where you could see a guy's butt. I guess he was a go-go dancer or something like that. And that had already planted into my mind. Oh, I go there at some point. And then, you know, a couple of years later, there I was with the choir camp going there. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to move here. Um, so in high school, I became very into the musical theater and it's funny. I was super lucky. I didn't know this was going to happen, but I was really blessed. And it's something to be grateful for because I was obsessed with the idea of going to the fame school in, uh, Cincinnati, the school for creative and performing arts. When I was around eight, you know, the woman next door recognized, oh, I think Paul Allison is taking his kids to the op- is taking this kid to the opera. I have a free ticket to this show. The King and I at the School for the Creative and Performing Arts. And I'm going to take my daughter and her best friend. But my daughter is sick. So I'll take the kid next door and my daughter's best friend who happened to be Sarah Jessica jessica parker what so (laughs) for one night only i met sarah jessica parker and sat next to her while watching the king and i at uh the school for creative and performing arts and was totally blown away by this play and absolutely knew at that time okay okay by the time i get to high school i want to convince my parents 
I want to go to this school and I want to be in musicals like that one. Well, my parents steadfastly refused. I think my mother especially was like, no, 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 you're going to get a Catholic education. So I went to a Jesuit high school, St. Xavier High School, which is an outstanding, outstanding high school. And it's funny because I was so mad that they wouldn't let me go to the SCPA. And right as I'm going to high school, the SCPA has huge child molestation scandals, like multiple scandals. Like it kind of shut the school down for more or less for a while. Oh my God. Um, Meanwhile, St. X had just hired this exceptionally talented, like radical envelope pushing lesbian drama teacher and theater director who was like, all right, first thing we're going to do is bye bye Birdie. Only Birdie is Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's so, a yeah, hot take. I, 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 yeah, I happen to have like this awesome high school theater uh, experience. And so many kids out of there are now on Broadway or, you know, uh, Andy Blankenbuehler has all these Tony Awards for his choreography of all Lin- Lin-Manuel Miranda's stuff. And, you know, the, it's just an, ex- it was an extraordinary gift to be in that theater group. And then more or less the same thing happened when I went to NYU. It was a really tough decision. Should I go into theater? Should I go into acting or, you know, movies? And I ultimately decided movies And when I got to NYU, I was very daunted because it's that experience that you have where all of a sudden you've been told you're a genius by friends and family, you know, when when you're in a big fish in a small pond. And then you arrive at a place like the Tisch School of the Arts and you're surrounded by kids from Paris and London and Berlin and whatever. Uh, and all, you know, everyone else is like crazy rich. And, and there was an incredibly male chauvinist, you know, like basically the kids who thrived at NYU film school were kind of dominant young men who wanted to be Scorsese and whose parents had all, all kinds of money to fund their film projects. So I immediately kind of was like, oh, wait a minute. I I learned right away that with ADHD, like filmmaking, like, like I, I can't, like cinematography and stuff, I cannot deal with all those details. <laughs> So I was very happy to realize, oh, you can still be in the film program, but focus on acting and writing. You know, you can just take those classes instead. And so I did. And that's how I ended up meeting the members of the state, the sketch comedy group. And I really kind of stalked them. Uh, Well, first of all, because I thought Joe Latrulio was hot. Like I literally just followed his ass down the hallways of school one day and I was like I had seen him at like first day of orientation and I was like whoa that guy is so hot and then one day it was like drop ad day 
And I was like, oh, my God, there's that boy again. And he he dressed very he was from Fort Lauderdale and he dressed very Miami Vice. Like this, this was 1988. Right. And I don't know. I hadn't seen people dressed that way, really, in real life. Um, so he, I, I kind of hung outside the counselor's office to listen to what he was dropping and adding. And I heard that he was adding motion matter and meaning uh, or no, no, was that? Well, anyway, he was he was adding this particular Super 8 film course that freshmen could take. And I just went in, you know, right after him and got <laughs> made sure I was going to be in a class with Joe Latrullio. Well, his first film project was all about his girlfriend. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I immediately learned that, you know, there's no use in continuing to pursue Joe. But uh, he and a couple other guys, Mike Jan was in that class. Uh, Ken Webb, who was an original member of the state, might have been in that class, too. Um, they loved my first movie, which was not about a girlfriend. It was just pure comedic silliness. And uh, they invited me to come see this show, uh, which was this the new group's first show. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, my gosh. I want to get into that group. So I started kind of stalking all of them, like trying to get into everyone's classes that were in that comedy group. And by sophomore year was hanging out with a bunch of them at this bar called the dugout no longer exists. It was like this punk rock bar in the East village. And one night uh, I went into the bathroom and it was kind of a thing of mine to be the guy who takes off all his clothes at a party. It had started in high school. Um, and so I went into the bathroom, but I'd never done it in a pub, in a, you know, I'd done it at house parties, right? Not, not at a bar where you can be arrested. <laughs> but I went into the bathroom and as I'm taking off all my clothes in there, I realized God, there's like an inch of urine water. <laughs> on the floor here this is very difficult like getting my boots off and putting them back on this is terrible and i had a pint of beer and by the time i finally had the boots back on but nothing else i went out into the bar and lifted my pint of beer and improvised like a wailing song like a, <laughs> a sea shanty about how standing in an inch of urine well becomes the wailing man um and uh, you know, just made my it kind of walked around the bar like that and then back into the bathroom and, and put my clothes back on before anyone could call the cops. And Carrie Kenny said to me, you're crazy. <laughs> you have to hang out with us more often. So I felt like that was really my first audition to actually become a member of the group, you know, uh, and it worked. It worked. I, I mean, what what I initially became was the group's sound guy which means the guy who presses the play button on the boom box <laughs> or the cassette tapes that are queued up with you know acdc or whatever to kick in <laughs> so uh, that's a, a long way to come because like uh just a, a pivotal member of of just such a uh brilliant troupe like just like and so many great characters and stuff like that so many great sketches um, how did you, how, but, totally. so, 
so so that all ends and how like how does the pivot to storytelling occur because uh, like i think like as much as i admire you as a sketch performer and as a member of the state i remember the first time i heard risk which was like one of the early podcasts that i that i ever listened to and stuff like that um and i was just blown away at kind of the space you created for people to just tell really you know, kind of not weird tales, but like, like the tagline is, you know, t- tales that people don't normally tell. Um, and, and it's just a really fascinating thing. You know what happened? Yeah. You know, when we got hired onto MTV, when we got our own show, uh, we would show up at 10 in the morning. That's when we decided the workday should start. And I, you know, I was never very, you know, I I have low self-esteem stuff that I've had to work through my whole life just because of the way I grew up thinking of myself as a kid. Um, So there were other members of the group who just had a hell of a lot more ego and had a hell of a a lot more, I don't know, that, that kind of, you find it among so many comedians that sort of like, punching thing it's the roasting sort of um humor and so there was a lot of because it was an 11 member group there was a lot of competition and a lot of trying to take one another down a peg in this or that way and sometimes it could get really really upsetting and so one day i suggested hey why don't we start the work day with like just a half hour of going around the room and everyone saying how they're doing, what's going on in their lives otherwise, and and so on. Um, we can call it check-in. And it was immediately like the, the group was very relieved that we put that in place. It, it was very, very good for us. But it was very funny, too, because... I was the member of the group who was most often not hanging out with the rest of the group at night. A lot of the members of the group were hanging out 24-7, you know, going out drinking or whatever after work. Whereas I was going off with my gay friends or to the sex clubs or the whole craziness of the kinky world and all that. Um, And so uh, Tom Lennon said one day, well, of course, Kevin came up with the idea for check-in <laughs> because every check-in, he's got the most insane story to share. <laughs> what the hell he was doing the night before? Um, so it was it was really Michael Ian Black, who all throughout the time we were in the state was really encouraging me you should get up on stage and, and and tell some of that stuff yourself. And I always, I was so fearful of that idea because I didn't really know how to be, I, I didn't know how to be, I knew how to be within the state. You know, I knew how to like be all these crazy, you know, larger than life sketch comedy characters. Uh, but I didn't know how to be, normal i didn't know how to be myself in front of an audience and black really was the one who had the insight of when we would shoot before a live audience 
there are all those moments where, oop, the prop broke, we've got to reset, and then the audience has to sit there for like 10 or 15 minutes while you fix that prop and reset everything and then get ready to shoot the sketch again. Um, and what Black would do was grab a microphone and just start chatting with the audience in a charming, funny way. And he was teaching himself how to do stand-up. You know, he was he was just improvising. And that was really ballsy and really wise. And I used to look at him and be like, man, damn, how does he do that? Um, so after the group broke up in 96, I went through a real belly of the whale period. It really, it lasted about a decade of kind of becoming a little bit afraid of other comedians, having a lot of social anxiety around performers in general, having stage fr- moments of terrible stage fright, um, kind of getting way too immersed in survival jobs like catering in order to just keep a roof over my head. And so it was a real kind of lost decade drinking way too much. It was, it was a hard time and I just didn't handle it all very well. When I talked about, cause Marin, when I was on Mark Marin's podcast, he was especially curious about that period. And, and I was kind of at the time kind of, speaking of myself as if I was blaming myself for it. And he was like, he's like, Kev, everyone deserves a lost decade. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what happened was in, I, I even tried to run away from the performing arts entirely uh, around about 2000 when I was 30 years old, I thought, nah, I'll just give up on, acting and getting up on stage or anything like that. And I'll go into writing and book publishing and stuff like that. So I got myself like a nine to five job at a small book publisher. And I even started taking classes at Hunter college to maybe get a master's in English and become like an English professor or something like that. And then about four years into that, which is miserable. I, you know, I was just, I was clearly just missing performing you know um someone emailed me and said hey are you kevin <laughs> like some some book editor was like wait a minute like I, I i'm working on some other project entirely are you kevin allison of the state and i emailed back yeah yeah yeah, yeah i am and she said would you come to this little writing school i'm starting and teach a how to write sketch comedy class and i was like Sure, I'll give that a shot. I think this was about 2015. And I got in front of this class, and they're all like, I don't know, 20 years old, but they're big state fans, you know? And standing in front of that class, I found that I could tell stories that some of which were very moving and heartfelt about how hard it can be to be a comedian sometimes. And some were kinky and ridiculous, like so many of my story, like the stories I would tell at check-in, you know, at, with the state. And, you know, others were just very, I don't know, goofy or whatever. And and I, I was like realizing that I could be all these different sides of myself standing in front of a room full of people. And that kind of lit the spark of me getting back on stage. So I started doing 
one person solo shows, you know, where I was playing these crazy characters again, but this time trying to show sides of myself in them. And in 2008, or I guess it would, no, it was the beginning of 2009. I did a solo show. It was called F Up. It was five characters who had effed up their careers. <laughs> so it was supposed to be, you know, autobiographical. And I did it at San Francisco, San Francisco Sketch Fest. And Michael Ian Black was in the crowd. And it was a disaster. It was just a bad night. The tech wasn't working. There was no one in the audience. It was, it was a disaster. And after the show, he said, you know, I really think... He was just echoing what he used to say way back when he was like, I think you should drop the act, get up on stage and just tell your own true stories. And I said, I feel like I've been hearing that for years. I feel like a voice in my head has been telling me that for years, but it just feels too risky. And he said, uh, <laughs> if it feels risky, that's probably a good sign. You know what I mean? Like, like, if you open up to an audience, they'll open up to you. So I thought to myself, okay, flying back to New York, I was thinking, what's the riskiest story I could attempt to tell? Because I'd never been to a storytelling show. I'd never been to The Moth um, or anything like that. But I I figured, okay, yeah, I, I guess it's just like doing a set of stand-up, only it's a story. And I thought, well, I could tell the story about the first time I tried prostituting myself <laughs> right before the state uh, was hired by MTV. This it, It's a comedy of errors. You know, I like, I was, turns out I was not very well <laughs> cut out for that line of work. <laughs> but i felt like it was just like so risky to be sharing about that you know because a lot of people have such weird feelings about that and this woman had this storytelling show at uh ucb theater margot lightman uh and julia rossi had a show at ucb in chelsea it, and they were all supposed to be stories about sexual situations and I told Margot, yeah, I think I can tell a story about <laughs> when I tried being a hustler. And she said, oh, my God, yes, you have to. But then on the day of the show, a couple of days later, I was like, I called her and I was like, I, I can't do this. And she was like, oh, my God, why? I said, it just feels too risky. And she said, listen, that is great news. <laughs> I said, what? Like, what are you? Did you overbook? She's like, no, 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 no. This show is all sex stories. There's often a person who calls me the day of the show and says, oh, I can't do it. It feels too risky. She's like, that's going to be the person, if I can convince them to do it anyway, that's going to steal the show. So she convinced me, and I tried it, and it was truly another eureka moment. It was, it was, I was so nervous because... It was very, it was funny because I looked out at the crowd and I was like, oh my God, they all look like frat boys. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like, it's like everyone looks very like the kind of people who are not going to be open to a story about prostituting myself. But every time I came to a part of the story, I was like, oh my God, this part sounds so gay or, oh God, I sound, I sound so Midwestern here or any of those inner critic bullshit things that I normally use to like, you know, psych myself out 
people just kept leaning further toward me like, oh, I can't believe he's being so real with us, you know, and they loved it. And it did steal the show that night. And I walked away. I, I remember walking down 8th Avenue just feeling electrified that night. And I felt like, okay, I keep hearing this word risk. I was now aware that podcasts existed. And I thought, look, in these 10 years of the belly of the whale, I've recognized that doing small room theater only gets you so far. And if I create show where I am forcing myself because of the regularity of having to do it to get up on stage night after night, despite my stage fright or whatever. And I make a podcast out of it so that it's reaching more people than a small room comedy show can. I might have an idea here, you know, to have a show where people tell true stories. They never thought they'd dare to share in public stories where you're inviting the people to take a risk and step outside their comfort zone and kind of come out about something or another. And since my whole life had been this kind of obsession of should I come out or should I not about this, that, or the other, I really felt like I had the ages to be, to be like the guy in front of all of that. And so really that night on eighth Avenue, the whole idea kind of crystallized in my head and that's when I started creating the show. And it was funny because I came to it with the same philosophy the state used to have, which was, you know, we taught ourselves sketch comedy. And then the guys from the state who created Reno 911, they had never taken an improv class before. And they were like, we're going to teach ourselves improv on TV. So I was <laughs> like, I'm going to teach myself storytelling by putting out a storytelling podcast and that's that's how it how, how it worked and i had realized from doing the sketch comedy workshop that you know like a uh, years prior that you learn so much better when you're teaching as well you know what i mean like like that really helps your conscious and subconscious come together with all that stuff and so I started producing risk and teach, teaching storytelling classes. So I just became totally immersed in storytelling. And, you know, I didn't have the, I had funny kinky stories mostly at first. Right. Uh, so I didn't have stories about serious trauma, you know, like the, the, people started coming to me because they felt like I was such a friendly, honest person who was willing to talk about stuff that might make some people uncomfortable. So people would come to me with stories about child molestation or murder in the family or stuff like that. And I mean, I, I re I, I was very, from the beginning, I was like, I want anything, anything like that. But you know, <laughs> I mean, that, that too was quite a learning process of realizing, Oh my God. Yeah. I'm a little bit of a therapist now. Two, you know, I have to be able to like responsibly shepherd people through what is not exploitative, but is as supportive as I can be. You know, um, there were several cases early on where I was like, oh, my God, uh, let me tell you what, like the first person who shared a child molestation story with me, 
she was really crying and and I was crying and it was it just you know felt very very raw and I said to her listen I'm just going to give you this recording and you take as much time to decide to listen back to it or not and if if you want to revisit it uh or, or whatever just get get back in contact with me and a couple of weeks later she was like I would like to do a second recording session. I mean, we can use some of this one, but but let, let let's get it a, a little bit more, you know, you know, let's finesse it a little bit. And we did, and when we put that out, I was like, "Wow, okay. This is we're really doing something with this, you know?" Uh because that's when people started writing in oh my God, this changed my life or this got me into therapy or this got me off of heroin or, you know, like all these emails coming in about the show being profoundly meaningful to people. And so I realized early on, okay, the money situation might be insane because I was, because at first I was just like running up credit cards to do this thing. You oh, know I, I know mean? it well. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was like, Oh, okay. Hearing that from people really fueled me to be like, all right, let's, let's make this work. And also early on, I realized that you can call out to the audience. Hey, is anyone good at business? Is anyone good at this or that? And that, you know, the whole risk team formed over the years from people hearing me ask for this or that and saying, oh, my gosh, I'm in love with the show and I'd love to help out in this way or that. And eventually that's how we put together a team. You know, I mean, I think everyone on the team is someone who fell in love with the show at some point. Yeah. Yeah, I've been I mean, like I've been a fan since the very first time I, I listened to it. And and like you said, like, you know, it started the way the way that it started and what it's become is just beautiful to me. I mean, like the 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 just wide swaths of types of stories you'll find you know um uh i'm i'm an acquaintance with rich monahan who told the the grapefruit story which is you know just incredibly <laughs> hilarious you know um you know you can have something like that and then there's like you know just incredibly horrifyingly sad stories about like um i forget who the the storyteller was who um talked about like repeatedly stabbing her mother like right, you know right, just right. like the the kind of spectrum that you've created that people have that kind of safe space to tell these stories and not just tell them but to listen to them you know yeah. like because it it is like a two-way thing like there is a receiver that that kind of needs that stuff sometimes too oh my gosh yes 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 I remember, you know, uh, some people go by uh, a pseudonym, a fake name, uh, which I'm perfectly fine with because, you know, my feeling is you're not necessarily here to give us some sort of like journalistic or court of law accuracy. Um, you're here to share your interpretation of your real life experience, you know, and so... You know, I'm very 
proud of of some of those stories that have come from people who i mean we've had a lot of well-known people do the show you know trevor noah and um margaret Cho, and you know just a ton of people bowen yang lots of good folks have been on the show but a lot of stories have come from people who are like have never done anything like it before you know like like have never like spoken publicly about what well or spoken publicly period you know so it's really been an honor to work with some of those folks there was a woman who told a story on the show uh marcy lang langlois her story was about how when she was i think 17 years old uh she was in a car accident it really it really wasn't her fault like these were elderly three very elderly folks in this car who probably shouldn't whoever was driving shouldn't have been driving right and uh the car accident killed those three people you know so at 17 all of a sudden she she had been in this accident that left three people dead and when i can't remember how she came into our orbit um but i i do know that she had shared about the incident at some sort of like oh i don't know some some sort of mental health conference or something like that and i said to her you know i can totally help you shape this story and and i want you to know it doesn't have to happen. I mean, you know, you can work on it and then decide not to. And it can take as much time as it takes. So she sent me like a first draft of like maybe the first 15 minutes of a story or something like that. And I gave her some positive feedback. And then she needed to take like a year and a half or so off, you know, and then uh, came back and started working with us again and the ultimate result is a story called Surrender, and it's probably, it might be almost an hour long, uh, maybe not quite that long, but oh my gosh, it's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. And she needed to record it alone. You know, normally a person is telling the story to me or to now one of our editors or coaches on the team. Um but she was like, no, I think I just need to be in my backyard with the crickets and then the birds chirping. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care about the crickets and the birds. Um, just just talk, talking almost to like some sort of archetypal therapist in her head or something like that. And I was like, yeah, you do you. And it took a long time for it to all come together. But I was so thrilled when it finally did. It's such an honor to be able to do that with people you know yeah and you know i i also think like um almost like a a, a form of therapy like some of, some of the notes that that you use um for storytelling um are things that help people unlock things that they might not have like um i made mention um l last week on the episode um that i uh, that you guys have selected me to uh perform in april at a uh, caveat and um, working on the story um, that that the audience doesn't know about yet, and I'm going to save it as a as a, a for for the show. I don't want to spoil anything here. Um, I've always looked at parts of this story through everybody else's eyes. 
because I was uh, always yeah, uh. worried about like everybody else's voice and just some of the notes and some of the um some of the the tips and techniques i started to like oh wait a minute this is like my story this is this wow. is about uh, me oh. and i found myself like literally sitting in tears writing notes but like not sad tears just wow. like and and yeah. the only other time i ever experienced something like that was um much like you i was diagnosed with adhd all right but for me I only found out like two years ago, two or three years ago or something like that. And I was reading right, this right. this book, um, uh, Driven to Distraction by Dr. Ned Hallowell. And I'm like reading things in uh-huh. there that like I just never would have even thought were ADHD traits. I just thought they were I'm a right. procrastinator, I'm broken or something like that. And I remember like reading people's right. comments about like, you know, relationship issues and stuff like that, just in tears like, yeah. "Oh my god, there's a reason for this?" Like, "Holy shit." Yeah. Like, and that's what I got yeah. from from kind of working through the storytelling notes. Like it's really just a an awesome technique not just for a podcast, but for kind of understanding yourself better yeah i'll tell you something because i was only diagnosed in 2019 and i don't know i i just didn't know about very much about it at that time as well and continue to learn about it and what's been fascinating for me is that some of my stories have i've now revised because i now have a new understanding of what my mind was how my brain was reacting to things you know that helps make the story make new sense for me and then there are other cases there's my story uh it's called man at hawaii about when i went to peru when i was 17 years old I I went to this Jesuit high school and this Jesuit priest had kind of like, you know, encouraged me to go on this sort of like a mission trip of like uh, building a school for, uh, you know, children living in dire poverty on the outskirts of a, you know, desert outskirts of a city down in Peru. And, uh, you know, it was a, you know, life-changing experience, but, when I put the story together, I mean, I knew the key incident that I wanted to focus on. I had like seen, I had been standing in front of this man who was clearly dying, who was clearly starving to death. And um, then I kept being like haunted by like a, a vision of him, you know, like um, as, as if I was, um, as if he was haunting me. Uh and I wrote this story about it. And actually, it's also a story of like a moment in my life where uh, I, clearly the universe was telling me you're a storyteller, but I didn't, you know, like it, it takes a while. It, oftentimes, you know, you, you have to learn lessons over and over again until they totally crystallize for you. But anyway, in putting the story together, I was like, wait a minute, at plot point A, here's the Jesuit priest and then b here he comes again to point me in a slightly different direction and then c here he comes again and then in the end he's at the very end of the story too now i know that my mother and that priest were because she was so unhappy about me being gay and this priest was your classic in the closet gay priest 
that they were kind of conspiring for me to be groomed to become a Jesuit. Oh, geez. (laughs) And so what originally to me was just this like really lovely story about these realizations I had in Peru. I'm like, oh, my God, there's there's another story. Yeah, there's another story happening in the structure of that story. So you can do stuff like that and have great revelations. I There's a story I told on Risk way, way back when in the earliest days about almost drowning in the Colorado River for some reason. Like, here's a very ADHD thing, like a bunch of friends running into the river rapids of the Colorado River and like. They're very athletic, you know, extremely athletic and swimming across and me being like, well, sure. Never having had a swimming. (laughs) Why don't I give that a shot? Good time to figure that out. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, So in the story, I call myself an idiot over and over and over again. And I played it for my for my now therapist because because i wanted to revisit that story to see what can i learn from that story now and he said you know this happened like what like 25 or so years ago and you're you're still calling yourself an idiot throughout the whole thing you have compassion for everyone in that story except for yourself and that was kind of a mind-blowing moment you know i mean here's a story that has been on risk and now i feel like oh i should read i should definitely retell that one and and acknowledge that aspect of it you know like dig into that <laughs> yeah unlocking- so yeah it's i i think they're always evolving yeah, unlocking those things is like so it's it's almost like it was there all along and the, and all it took was a little story. Um, so so you guys are are bringing bringing risk to Philadelphia which will be uh this Thursday, uh March 2nd at World Cafe Live, um which have you have you ever been to the World Cafe? Um it's a great room. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Um I think I've been there. I think we've done risk there a couple of times. And I especially have fond memories of uh, the last time we did it because uh, Tracy Segarra told a story there that was so moving. And it was about her relationship with her non, her then daughter, but who is now non-binary, I think. And, uh, her daughter (laughs) came to her after the show and said i didn't like some of the way you told that story i i didn't think that you know like i don't i didn't feel like you were getting some of it right and i was so like it was one of those moments of where i said to tracy that's remarkable can you retell it then in another context and like work through that with your family and she did and it was also in the risk book so i always remember that moment of being like wow that was really emotionally intelligent for a teenager to express some of the insights they had about the story that night and how that story ended up transformed because 
I was that night in Philadelphia at World Cafe Live. I was like, oh, fuck. Are you kidding? We're not going to be able to run that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the producer hat comes on real quick, doesn't it? <laughs> but it ended up making it even better. That's that's so great. Um, what, what's the lineup looking like uh, for this show? A lot of good stories or, uh, well, obviously. Oh, my gosh. This was kind of like one of those, what did they call it? What, like the feast where the, there was too much to choose from. So we have a lot of people who pitched for this show that we're also going to try to do radio style stories with. But yeah, we have a remarkable story about like a phone sex sort of scenario. That's it. We've had a couple of those, but never one that gets as like, intimate and and emotional as this one does that we have a story that goes into like the marrying for a green card i i guess that I, I didn't realize that there's an entire like industry for, oh, for that i mean of, of course of course there is but you know yeah like so it's it's very like um there's a lot of intrigue and mystery there's a lot of suspense in this show where there's like twists at the end um oh there's there's a therapy there's a bad therapy story you know there's like a, a story about a therapist who was not <laughs> not within the boundaries that a therapist should be in. And then there's a remarkable story from an Arab American reporter who spent a lot of time in Iraq and Afghanistan and all that he had to witness and just all the tremendous irony that he was always facing of around his identity of being from America, but having family over there and just like, you know, what a mind fuck it was for him. Yeah. So yeah, these are, these are going to be like, and then I'll tell, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to tell a story that is exactly what we were just talking about. Like something that happened to me when I was in college at film school that now I have a totally new understanding of, because of knowing how my brain works now <laughs> it's awesome you know I'm, I'm, so yeah like, it's gonna it's gonna be really great the, i i i had pitched actually for this show um it was kind of what got me off uh off my ass about it um because i had this whole other story idea and it was it was i'll, I'll be 100 it was garbage it was just that i wanted to pitch something <laughs> and then the story that happened like um literally um uh i got the results to to the story without spoilers um the day before pitches were due and i was like oh god this is the story oh no like i was like, like it, it oh. snuck up on me so like it was it was it was completely like from i was like oh no i know what i have to tell and and my fiance was like she was like uh pitch this like this is what you need to pitch this is what you need to work through that's amazing um, that's great but yeah i'm uh i'm very excited for this this show i i I love uh seeing this stuff live do you prefer doing the uh the radio version or the live version like what 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 do you think kind of fosters a better uh, experience? You know, it's, it's interesting because the live experience is, you know, it's really funny. Like, like the, I love telling stories about 
nights when things went haywire in the way that only live theater can. Like three different people have fainted at <laughs> risk live shows before because of the story content. Um, there have been other times where, oh, you know, someone like did actually have a little bit of a meltdown up on stage. Um, and, and then there have been times, you know, like one of the most famous times is the time a fella got up in Seattle and he said, well, Kevin told me I was supposed to go with my therapist interpretation of what happened here and <laughs> tell you I did not have sex with aliens from outer space, but I'm here to tell you I had sex with aliens from outer space. And the audience was just jaw dropped and I'm in the wings like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it 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 ended with um, Jesus, Buddha, and Ramtha, which is, th there's a whole cult around this entity called Ramtha, uh, informing him that, yes, his his story was was the real deal so yes the surprise of live yeah i guess you can't re recreate that in a radio show <laughs> yeah but i do love the radio stuff as well i do love there's a different kind of intimacy with the radio style stories um because well sometimes a person is just a lot more willing to say really hard stuff in a more private setting um so yeah I, I i wouldn't trade either you know sure in fact we're thinking that because we're still in this era where live theater is uh, all live theater it doesn't matter if it's classical music or going to the movies or whatever is still in a slightly wonky place which seems to have to do with adaptation people getting oh, wow, getting so used to their huge new entertainment systems that they bought during the pandemic or during the lockdown. Um, people just being used to, like, not going out to theater. So we don't know if we're still in that or if we've gotten through that hump because we're now thinking, well, you know, it would be kind of fun to, like, this summer try having like backyard around a fire sort of like campfire kind of story, you know, where it recording, uh, you know, live shows, but in much more intimate settings and, and seeing what that sounds like, because, you know, we don't necessarily need the live shows to make money. You know, the money we make is mostly in other ways. Our school, we teach a lot of corporate workshops and, of course, the advertising for the podcast. So we're um, trying to get creative and, and experiment with um, how we might do live experiences. And then, But then you never know. Like, it might come like, oh, no, all theater seems to be completely back to normal. And we'll just be like, oh, well, you know, nothing beat. Like, we did the San Francisco show in February, in the beginning of February, and it was a big, big theater, a very full house and just a spectacular show. So maybe maybe I'm being silly and <laughs> we'll, the sky we'll be back falling. to normal. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, well, at this time, would you like to go through the jauntlet? These are my stock questions that I ask every guest uh, just to gauge uh, what I think their likes are and, and to get to know them better. Uh, the first section is the one-hit wonders. Uh, the first one, Billy Joel or Elton John? Oh, my God. Elton John, definitely. He, I, I go back to a lot of his early 70s stuff all the time. Honky Cat, I love especially you know a lot of his just his old stuff just sounds so great you know yeah and you know billy joel billy joel is the first concert i ever saw uh at uh riverfront stadium in cincinnati uh so i have some appreciation for him and i'm always in his backyard when i am on my friend's boat I have a friend who has a boat in Oyster Bay. Oh, okay. Just hap- and the it just happens to be docked across the river or whatever it is, the bay from Billy Joel's house. So we're always um, you know, what's going on over there? <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Uh number 2, Debbie Harry or Joan Jett? Oh, I would have to say Debbie Harry. You know, I mean I I love jo- Joan Jett, but I feel like Debbie Harry I feel like Blondie is so like he and fun and interesting, like that weird way that that CBGB's scene, like one of the things I love about the CBGB scene is I've never, I've never liked the Ramones. (laughs) So I love the fact that talking heads had the philosophy. Well, let's sound like anything other than the Ramones. Other than the, Yeah. <laughs> that was their only guiding philosophy. And because everyone else was trying at CBGB's was trying to sound like the Ramones. Uh, but then Blondie was another one of those bands where it's like, okay, I guess you're kind of disco. <laughs> a little yeah. Bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I appreciate her for that. I heard recently um, that Joey Ramone once admitted that what the the Ramones were trying to do was be the Bay City Rollers, and now I can't listen to the Ramones without hearing Saturday Night. Like it's like it like all it it's rock and roll radio, uh, rock and rock and roll. It's S A T U R. It's so fascinating. Very very funny. That's awesome. Yeah, it made me appreciate them in a whole different light. Like it's 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 kind of like the storytelling unlock. Like once I found that key i was like oh my god this is this is so right there in in your face (laughs) that's great uh number three aretha franklin or tina turner oh my god you know i feel like that one is uh uh oddly look i feel like well i would have to just flat out say aretha right Uh, aretha i feel like is is more like soul and i feel like tina is more like rocking r&b you know Uh, but but yeah, I have my Aretha story. I, at my lowest point, you know, when the state was still in reruns on MTV, but I was unemployed because we were no longer working at MTV. Uh, that's when I was catering. And I was catering at the Grammy Awards in the VIP room, pouring champagne at this little bar. And Aretha starts to walk into the room with her giant, you know, like gown and all that sort of thing. And Sarah McLaughlin happened to be walking through the door at the same time. 
and then realized, oh shit, my God, I'm walking right next to Aretha. And she went, oh, my God, Aretha, uh, can I get you um, a glass of champagne? So they walk up to the bar. And then Sarah McLaughlin looks up at me and clearly recognizes me from the MTV show. And she says, without thinking, she said, oh, my God, what are you doing? Oh, no. (laughs) And Aretha looks at her like, huh? And and she says to Aretha, oh, he's a very successful comedian. And Aretha just raised her eyebrow and looked at me and said, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so I've just always loved that as like, you know, definitely like a lowest moment, but at the same time, amazing, you know? That's so, that's <laughs> tremendous. That is absolutely tremendous. <laughs> oh, God. Um, the the next one, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Oh, definitely Nirvana. You know, I was the only member of the state who turned down the opportunity to be there at nirvana unplugged oh you know, my everyone God. was like uh yeah yeah everyone was was had a free ticket to to be there and i don't know what i was thinking i just thought oh there'll be so many occasions where i can see nirvana and there was some sort of gay sex <laughs> party happening that night which in retrospect no there's always an occasion to go to a gay sex party <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't thinking with my brain, but no, no, I, um, you know, as time has passed, I've become even more appreciative of, especially like the attitude of, oh, I don't know. They, they were so, you know, embracing of, you know, feminism and queer people. It was just a kinder, gentler, you know, kind of a, it was kind of, kind of, changed a a lot and then and then it was so disappointing that by the time that like woodstock 99 came around it it felt like all of that i don't know innocence or whatever of the early 90s was very very lost you know yeah but yeah i uh i i still have so much fondness for all of that uh it's beautiful uh janice joplin or stevie nicks Oh, definitely, Janice. I don't know exactly what it is, but I've just never been, been a Stevie person. I do love Fleetwood Mac, uh, but I've just never been a Stevie Nicks person. You know, here in New York, we have the queer community has Night of a Thousand Stevies. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because I didn't realize you don't have to come dressed as Stevie and two friends of mine did something brilliant. It's a, a a couple of friends of mine. The one happens to look a lot like Lindsey Buckingham. Oh. And so he put on like a big, you know, like uh, mid-70s afro and all that. And the other uh, can easily dress up to look like Stevie Wonder. So, so they, they went as those two and were, you know, well-beloved to be like, you know, two of the few people who weren't wearing a bunch of uh scarves scarves yeah sure <laughs> that's awesome 
<laughs> that is so awesome. Um, the the big one, the cliche one, Beatles or the Stones? Definitely the Beatles. You know, I realized when Get Back came out, the Peter Jackson documentary from last or the Christmas before this past one, um, where it's like nine hours of you watching them work on what became the album Let It Be. I realized that as a kid, that is exactly what I was always wondering. You know, I would hear a song and be like, oh, wow, I wonder if it was raining that day. And were they joking around? Or, you know, how long did it take to do this? And, you know, that documentary totally shows you all that. And, I, you know, I, I normally hate Peter Jackson's tendency to make everything 9,000 times longer than it has to be. Yeah. But in this case, when he was like, oh, I'm thinking of releasing an 18-hour version of that documentary, I'm like, I think I would be tempted to watch that too. <laughs> 100%. Like, just watch it. Like, being able to watch geniuses create, like, you don't, we don't have Beethoven, you know, f- film footage of Beethoven crafting symphonies totally. and stuff like that. But being able to, like, you yeah. know, everybody talks about it, but when when Paul sits there with that bass and just starts coming up with get back. Like it's, it's watching inspiration in its creation is just like unbelievable. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Uh, The final one hit wonder Bohemian Rhapsody or stairway to heaven. (laughs) I'm going to have to say uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. It's funny because a friend of mine, has a very, I don't know, very literal way of listening to music. And she's a lot younger. And she was exposed to some of Elton John's music and to Queen's music at the same time. And she's very straight-edged, has never done a drink or a drug. And she was like, "What? What? why at this point in the early 70s, like, why did the lyrics not have to make any sense? Like, what do you have to be on drugs to understand that stuff? And I was very disturbed by that because I was like, no, when I was a kid, I was totally into all this stuff and I wasn't doing drugs yet, you know? Um, but no, yeah, Bohemian Rhapsody is really fun for, and I use it all the time for storytelling teaching because. A lot. Whenever someone is monotone, a lot of people have the problem of, of either being monotone or of not, not knowing how how different scenes in a story or different sequences in a story. You need to kind of shift gears a little bit in order to get into the emotional vibe of this part of the story that you're now transitioning into a lot of people just have a tendency to just talk the same way all throughout same pace same pitch same rhythm and so i'll use that song bohemian rhapsody as like an example or or i'll use a driving uh, you know like imagine you're going up a hill and then coming down fast and then making a sharp turn and then slowing down and you know all that kind of thing um because that song is so bonkers that way and also i guess i probably appreciated it too because there was that weird opera yeah yeah thing in it and then i was you know all around that as a kid stairway to heaven like um i i re- i appreciate 
Led Zeppelin for sure. But one of my favorite anecdotes is Dylan. You know, there are so many hilariously ridiculous Dylan anecdotes, but there's the one of it's like 1974 and they're at some sort of, I don't know, bunch of rock stars or somewhere. And a guy comes up and shakes Bob's hand and he's like, Hey, Bob, I'm the manager of Led Zeppelin. And Bob pulls his hands away and he says, I, I don't come to you with my problems, man. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Brilliant, Bob. I love it. Well, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. Like, I, I like I like Led Zeppelin and I respect them a lot, but I also think that they're easily one of the most overrated bands of all time. And I don't I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean like the legend of Led Zeppelin Led Zeppelin seems to supersede the material they created, you know, like uh but I, I recognize yeah. their influence and stuff. But but yeah, Queen I was I was a Queen guy all day, all night. Like that's that's it for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I always say do you know the mud shark song by zappa yes uh, about led zeppelin yeah yeah that that that, that story is insane <laughs> I, I, I'm, I've been waiting I've been waiting for that like to come back as like like how are we not revisiting a lot of these rock stories in all of the change in, yeah. in tenor and stuff like that like that one and everybody knows about it like it's not a secret <laughs> you know like <laughs> right right it's right wild. right yeah it has been well do you remember when Chrissy Hine revealed that she had kind of been i guess kind of sort of raped in a sort of a situation or 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 in a rapey situation and it was i think she wrote a biography about you know i regret that i put myself in that situation and he, he was kind of a dick to have done that to me but like you know like not really blaming you know like just 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 feeling like it was kind of a crazy time or something like that and people got really pissed off at her for not talking about her experience in the way they wanted to hear it and we get that we get that at risk a lot um where especially if it's a child sexual situation you know a child and a and an adult or like a teenager and adult you know yeah. anything where someone's under the legal age um, where there are incidences where a person is like, well, actually I am not traumatized. You know what I mean? And and I have to, as the host of the show, I'll come on after a story like that and say, Hey, you might've been through a very, very closely identical sort of experience. And totally have every you know right to you know feel traumatized and uh have a different perspective and all that sort of thing but i really have to respect when a person has their own perspective the thing came out about bowie you know um sleeping with a 16 year old girl or something like that and and her take was are you kidding Right, right. <laughs> she was like, "No, I loved it." <laughs> yeah. So you know, I mean, everyone's different, I guess. Yeah, it's, but no, I, I totally agree with you. It'll be it, it'll be fascinating. I, I was so mind blown to find out that Peter Yarrow of Peter Paul and Mary, like, I think twice 
I think at least twice was caught with like girls like you know like 13 or something like that like that is you know just there's no you know forgiving for that i feel sure like. you know what i mean yeah, yeah it's, sometimes it's, it's just beyond the pale it and and it's weird the um how hyper focused people will get on certain stories um when when there is it's just it was r- rampant for a while you know like and yeah and, uh, and, yeah, and i yeah. know you can't try everybody at the same time and stuff like that but it's weird that like i said the things that we know that are in you know common jokes like like the mud shark story where where like it's like no we all know it it's not it's not a secret <laughs> like but yeah yeah and 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 i think you're i think you're right that that the context of what a particular personality like peter paul and mary it it like that was another gr- group that I didn't list from when I was really young. I listened to a lot of their stuff. Um, you know, I mean, it's just so hard to think of them. Yeah, <laughs> like like they're they're just so pure. You know, early sixties folk. You know, like they just seem so innocent and and. I think it's still really good in a lot of ways as representative of all that. Um, but yeah, like, ooh, I think a lot of people just tried to ignore that one for years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but, but then there are, there are cases like that one or like where, where it's just, you know, more comes out and eventually it's like, okay. Yeah. The, <laughs> the well breaks. And, and, and yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the the second half of the jauntlet here. This is the top ten countdown. As I as I told you in email, Philly uh, John can mean anything you want it to be. So uh, the number one. What was your first John? What was the first thing you were obsessed with as a co- as a kid? Well, that that always brings to mind my story of uh, when I was a three and a half or four somewhere in there. Uh, I, I found this little Hummel. Well, it wasn't Hummel, but but it was a figurine of uh, a kid about my age, like a toddler in a onesie. And the back trap of his onesie had opened up. He's crawling around and you can see his butt. You know, it's supposed to be cute. You, you can still find these things all over the place. It's like um, the archetypal, I don't know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just thought, that that was the most wonderful thing I had ever seen. <laughs> at, at that age, what I knew to call that was Heine. We used sure. the word Heine uh, for, for butt. And uh, yeah, I just ran around the house like a maniac, like Paul Revere, just yelling at everyone. <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely like a, fir- like a, uh, um, where where one gets one's beginnings sort of story it was all seated right there yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. uh number two what's your current john what are you into right now oh my god the answer would definitely have to be hypnosis hypnotherapy you know i first hypnotized someone when i was six in the sixth grade 
just because I saw someone do it on television and then ran to the library and got a book about it and then tried it with a friend. And um, it was, I actually got a terrible ab reaction out of this person. She was another sixth grader. It was after school, just a bunch of kids hanging out. And we were always doing that kind of shit, you know, like choking each other out yep. or, you know, poking pop rocks. You know, like. <laughs> but I hypnotized this gal and um, just took her like on a little imaginative, like walk on a beach or something like that. And then when she came out, she couldn't feel her left leg like had no feeling or able ability to move her left leg. And uh, we were all like, oh, come on, Carolyn, come on, you're kidding us. And she was like, no, I'm not kidding. And we pulled her up and said, well, just walk it off. It probably fell asleep. And she fell down and she started screaming. She was like freaking out. And all my friends were like, we've got to call an ambulance. And I was freaking out. Then I like thought, okay, maybe I can like hypnotize her again and bring life back to the leg like Jesus or something, right? And that did work. And God only knows it might have, it really might have been that it just honestly. <laughs> but it did leave me with the impression of, oh, uh, there's something to this. And so, you know, over the, the I went, there's the story Kevin Goes to Kink Camp is probably my best known episode of risk of us of me telling a story it's a it's a pretty long one where i go to this kink camp in when i was in my early 40s and kind of experience all this crazy crazy bdsm kink stuff happening but at some point that weekend i went to a hypno erotic hypnosis workshop the great thing about those camps is you know you're there for like four or five days and you can take all these workshops and after a while you're just like instead of like stuff that you you're really you know hot for or whatever eventually you're just like I, i'll go to that one but like, that sounds what weird you know you don't think yeah. you're gonna do anything with it so i went to this hypno uh erotic hypnosis workshop and it was with this gal that i had just met we were sitting next to each other and we were like oh my god i wonder if the teacher will like have hired an actor to pretend they're being hypnotized you know like stage hypnosis or something like that and when the teacher did get a volunteer and hypnotized them the gal next to me slumped over into my lap and the teacher was like oh shit you know and was like tending to her because <laughs> and so that was the second time in my life where i was like oh my god there, there's something to this so I became kind of like obsessed with studying it in the most affordable ways I could from like online courses and stuff like that. And finally, a good friend of mine, a wealthy woman who just like gets a kick out of me, uh, she was like, yeah, I'll pay for you to take a real certification course. And so I'm taking this course this year it's a year-long thing but it might take longer it's the sort of thing where you can keep going with it uh that's taught by a buddhist monk in the northern mountains of thailand <laughs> and he teaches it over zoom and so by the end of the year i might be certified in hypnotherapy which i i have no idea exactly it's kind of like 
when I created risk, I realized we tend to have, we tend to like learn things along the way without necessarily knowing how they're all going to come together. And so I figured this is one of those things where I'm like, this will being able to use this in various ways, but I might not even know what they are yet, you know? So yeah, yeah, I'm just kind of, it's kind of a hobby and a fascination right now. That sounds cool. That sounds really cool. And sounds like the kind of tool that in, in kind of helping someone unlock something would be enormous. Yes. It's Ericksonian hypnotherapy, which is all about story and narrative and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of in line with like Jung and Joseph Campbell and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's it's it feels very related. Very cool. Uh number 3 is first concert, but you said Billy Joel. Um so number mm-hmm. 4, what was yeah. your last concert? What was the last live show you went to? Oh gosh. Uh well, it was John Waters. Oh. Uh, um well, I mean that's not that okay, that wasn't a you mean a music concert? No, that that absolutely counts. I yeah, I, I Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it was funny. I saw him uh Sunday night. He I a friend invited me and I said, "Sure." I had no idea he even did this, but he does stand up basically. Uh and I don't know how old he is. He he's pretty old. Uh but he had enormous amounts of energy and seemed healthy as all get out and you know he's not exactly like i don't know the hippest you know contemporary stand-up comedian or whatever but it was quite a kick you know uh, uh with all of his references to his old movies and stuff like that so it was it was really enjoyable you know he's he's kind of a hero too is it's, it's Especially his old movies are just so endlessly insane. Yeah. I mean, like the the ability he had and still has to make really bizarre things cool um, is something I've yeah. always admired. Yeah. Like I've always loved, you know, like telling the story of the weirdest, the the freaks, the us, you know, uh, of my people. Oh, totally. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, um, uh, a friend of mine is writing a biography of him. She's a very prominent, like, sex educator and member of the kink community. And she she had some sort of book deal where they won- they wondered if she wanted to write a biography of someone because she's a writer. And she chose Waters in particular because she said, I think it's important to show the younger generation how the prior generation especially of queer folk were like pushing the envelope in ways that would not be considered politically correct today but were important you know you know like when you hear rumors that kids are offended by um uh walk on the wild side for yeah exoticizing you know yeah um and and you know the importance of giving the context around things, but also just just the spirit of oh, being a little bit more uh, able able to joke about stuff. There was that there was that play on Broadway. Um, it, it was a queer playwright and it was envisioning 
the the people in in you know Shakespeare's play Titus Andronicus, his first play, when Shakespeare was super young, and apparently he wanted to impress everyone with like what a what a hetero tough kind of young writer he could be, because it's just like nothing but murder left and right. It's the most yeah. brutal of all his plays. Um, and so someone wrote a play and Nathan Lane was in it uh, several years ago of the the janitor uh, and the clown who were working around Titus Andronica having to clean up all the corpses. Um, and the, the, the playwright expressed as queer people, we have to be able to continue laughing about really awful shit you know facing like terrible crises and stuff like that but still having a sense of humor you know what i mean and i think yes i think writing a biography of john waters is a good way to preserve that sort of thing absolutely absolutely uh number five what was your favorite concert what was the best live show you ever saw oh you know I, this is gonna sound crazy because it's a movie uh, i mean i did see david burns uh, american utopia was that what it's called yeah, uh, yeah. W- w- wherein he he did a lot of talking heads um but when i was i was probably 15 or so when stop making sense came out and it was at this art theater in downtown cincinnati that encouraged the audience to dance, you know, to like get up from your seats and dance if you wanted to. And I remember seeing that. And then very shortly thereafter, seeing Laurie Anderson's Home of the Brave. And both of those movies totally lit me up about how creative and alive and dynamic music making live music making could be in the 1980s because you know i think we grew up you know with older kids being like the 70s suck you know it was so much better every all everything was so much better in the 60s and then when the 80s came around it was like the 80s suck things yeah. were better in this you know it's just, it's always that attitude and now i have like a lot of new appreciation for a lot of the stuff that was being done in the 80s that at the time i might have like you know been like well of course the the golden era was years ago you know now realizing oh i couldn't help but love prince <laughs> right right even though i was told that that wasn't cool 100 percent, 100 percent. uh number six who have you never seen live that you wish you could have there they can be living or dead oh gosh uh now does that have to be a musician too no no any kind of uh performance i think Gosh, that is such a good question. Mm. Um, I mean, it's very funny to have like these 
like to think of Carl Jung to start off um, just because like that, that would be so weird and it might be very awkward. You know, like I always think when you think of like, for example, a Jesus is another one where I always think, you know, given the chance to meet that person, how weird would it be? Because you'd probably be sitting there with probably like a strange, homeless, like Palestinian person from the first century who wouldn't fit any of the right <laughs> any uh, any of the mythic imagery you know and, and would would not understand your language and all that kind of thing um but yeah i mean i guess it would have really been something to have seen like for example john lennon like that would have been really something to have been in a room with him performing, you know? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, number seven, what about an unappreciated John? Something that you feel like doesn't get enough respect? Oh, um, well, you know, I love movies that, you know, I, I, I love art movies, but sometimes it's the ones that are so bizarre uh like the two that i'm thinking of right off the top of my head because i've just seen them recently are the japanese movie house from uh 1977 in english it's just house um which is truly one of the most insane things i've ever seen in my life you know and i I, I I mean I think that the filmmaker realized it was insane. He 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 admits that he takes he took most of his story ideas for the film from like his nine year old daughter. Um, and but you know it's funny because it kind of points to how outrageously creative Asian cinema has kind of always been and you know and which is which now we're just totally coming around to fully appreciating you know like the amount of creativity in a movie like parasite for example i think you can see the beginnings of some of that in some of these little bizarro uh what they call the i think they call it the new wave the japanese, japanese new wave, wave of like yeah. the 70s yeah, there's a there's a there's a it's it's not an insane movie, but there's a movie called In the Realm of the Senses, which is super, 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 super duper kinky. The two lead actors, a woman and a man are naked and fucking through really fucking throughout the entire movie, basically. Uh, but it's a true story and really beautifully done and you know, if you're not kinky, you might be a little traumatized by it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I love. I, I and you know, there are a lot of those movies, uh, movies of the '70s in general. Like I, t they are so bold. Um, even that movie Solo by uh, P Pasolini is, you know, a lot of people consider it the hardest movie ever to watch. Uh, again, very kinky, but in a <laughs> not but consensual not. way right <laughs> yeah yeah sure. um yeah there's a lot a lot of those experimental kind of movies of the 70s i just love brilliant answer 
Uh, number eight, what's your favorite album? Oh, gosh. That's possible to answer because even when I was a kid, I was kind of on random you know and, and when i mean when i say on random i mean picking up the needle putting it on another you know i would just have a tendency you know if there was something that was especially compelling to me and pulling me through like jesus christ superstar or something where it's like oh my god wait what's gonna happen next um then i you know would definitely become obsessed with the whole album or or, or sergeant peppers or whatever but my tendency was to get stuck on a song and replay that. And then if a song didn't speak to me very much the first time I heard it, to start skipping that one and to just always be putting other records on. And, and so I've kind of always been listening to music in random. And when we started Risk, I was determined to be using a lot of indie music. Um, this was 2009 when we started. And it was a really nice era for indie music at that time. Uh, and so it was really fun for me to be online all the time, like looking through indie music lovers lists of songs to check out month to month, you know, news, new song, new singles or whatever that had come out from bands you'd never heard of. And so I was really proud of the music curation of the show Back in the day, I mean, I still am, but I'm a little bummed because now we get these random corporations threatening to shut us down for running right. this or that. You know what I mean? So now we can't. We used to put out these best of risk music compilations where you could hear the entire songs in mixes. I've always been a huge fan of making mixes, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't really, I can't say I have a favorite album, but I have just a bazillion favorite songs. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Uh, number nine, name an artist whose output you'll consume anything they release, even if you have to ever be apologetic for it. <laughs> oh, well, you know what? I would say that, that Miles Davis and John Coltrane, I mean, not that they have anything new to release. Well, actually that's not true. There's been there was a new Coltrane thing just a couple of years ago. Um, and of course, Miles is a part of Columbia, which loves the whole now we'll release every, you know, yeah. little scratch and tidbit. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, almost anything those guys did, uh, I want to hear at least once, you know. And that's another example. Miles is another example of someone where you're like, oh, God, I don't want to think about some of the things he did yeah. you know and especially because the you know talk about peter paul and mary especially because the miles's music is so sweet you know that the thought of him like beating people up and stuff like that and you know just being a lunatic sometimes uh, is kind of hard to take but um i think it's a little bit easier to uh when when there's no lyrics, right, <laughs> it's a right. little easier. Yeah, because you don't have to you don't have to read into things. Like you don't it doesn't yeah. paint a different picture when you hear a certain line and you go, Oh no, I'll never hear that again, like the same way that I did. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like some of R. Kelly or Michael Jackson's yes. lyrics are a little bit like 
oh my god that's kind of on the nose <laughs> michael jackson's a big one because he has this song called speechless and it's one of the most beautiful songs i ever heard of in my life and it's on the invincible album mm-hmm. which you know critics panned and stuff like that and it was late it was the last thing he released uh, uh while he was alive and i remember like getting the vibe magazine interview when it came out and they're like uh speechless is one of the most beautiful songs i ever heard tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind it and i was like here we go and he was like i was in germany having a water balloon fight with a bunch of children and i was like god damn it like, <laughs> like <laughs> you had one chance here to help me out and uh, and now like i can't hear that ever again cuz i'm like oh shit <laughs> Lie to me. Oh my Lie to God. me, MJ. <laughs> um, <laughs> the uh, the tenth and final of the top ten countdown. What is your favorite John of all time? What's something that you just absolutely love? Um, uh, you know what? I, probably the movie that I have seen more than any other is Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which I was introduced to when I was. Seven. I remember my brothers, you know, they would watch late night movies. And the weekend before the film, uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly was on the Sergio Leone uh, spaghetti western. And they were like, oh, this is going to be so cool. And Kev, you should watch this. They wanted to expose me to it. But when the music came on at the beginning of that movie, it scared me. I was like, oh, no, this is going to be horrifying. It felt like a horror movie to me. So I ran away and they were like, oh, whatever, you're lost. Then the next weekend, PBS had playing Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And again, it was late night. It was like 11 p.m. or something like that, way past my bedtime. And they were like, Kevin, come on, check this one out. Check this one out. And that one starts with this music that goes you know it starts as if it's gonna be really heavy and again i almost ran out of the room and they were like kevin stay here you'll see it's gonna be funny and i had just never seen anything like it before um you know all of my favorite like art experiences are coming into something having had no priming for it, you know, just like having had no marketing, no idea what you're watching. Citizen Kane when I was nine, Blue Velvet when I was 16, um, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail when I was seven. These movies were just like, I was just like, what? (laughs) What? What is going on here, you know? And, uh, oh, gosh, it was just so funny And I love that when you're a kid, you can appreciate things without even understanding them. You know, like I remember, I think I saw all the president's men on TV. The whole family was sitting around watching it. And I must have been around seven or eight at that time, too, and literally had no clue what was going on in this movie. You know what I mean? Like, I I, I didn't know about I hadn't followed the water hearings when i was two um but i just knew that that movie was riveting you know like like, there was very exciting stuff happening in that movie and i was fascinated by it and i think it was very similar with uh monty python and the holy grail where it was just i just thought it was hilarious 
Although I could not have explained why or what was going on. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, then I, yeah, totally. And, and, and from that point on, I, um, just watched it over and over you know i got i i when when vcrs came out i bought a 300 betamax that was my first big purchase of my life <laughs> saved up the money and so yeah i watched that one over and over again oh it's beautiful i love it and and it kind of uh paints the path um that you took through the state and all like that's the it makes sense that it would that it would uh be so pivotal uh in your life so uh like we said this thursday march 2nd world cafe live we got uh the the risk live show uh what's what's the website address if if people want to pick up some tickets for this yeah it's at risk-show.com slash tour so risk hyphen show.com slash tour perfect and if they want to follow you guys on the socials what's the best way to track you down everywhere on instagram and twitter and facebook we're at risk show fantastic kevin thank you not just so much for doing this interview but thank you for the laughs the quotes and for creating such a beautiful space for people to share um their crazy stories man like i i genuinely appreciate <laughs> everything you've done um and i'm so so excited to get to be a part of it uh in april <laughs> yeah yeah thank you so much yeah this was a blast epic my thanks again to Kevin for joining me on the show today. Tickets are still available for Risk at the World Cafe Live this Thursday, March 2nd, featuring stories from Fancy Feast, Jad S., Jillian Markowitz, and Kevin James Doyle. Visit www.risk-show.com tour for tickets and details. You can find Risk on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Risk Show. And you can find Kevin himself at The Kevin Allison. Links to all of those are in the show notes. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the Yo That's My John podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. And y'all, it's not too late. You can get yourself a super awesome John Scout merit badge for citizenship of the world just by rating and reviewing us. Don't forget to visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com for articles, merchandise, and links to all of the previous episodes of this podcast. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to get all of the updates delivered straight to your inbox. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yo that's my John for updates and live streams. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Yo That's My John and search Yo That's My John on YouTube to find the Yo That's My John YouTube channel. Like and subscribe the heck out of that ish. We want to hear from you. Reach out, reach out, and touch some John. All right, I got a little farly in the beginning of this episode, didn't I? Whatever, no shame in my game. Blue skies. Until next time, everybody. Hey, yo, displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure. Your taste in music doesn't have to be. Yo, That's My John is a Lonely Monk production written and produced by yours truly, Nate Runkle. Theme song by Phil Tyler Music featuring Nate 3.0. Special thanks to Fox Run Brands, DX Ferris, Andrew Scott, Natalie Runkle, and the incredibly brilliant and wickedly stunning Katie Daubney. 
If you or anyone you know has any ideas they would like to share or any guests they would like to hear on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at yo that's my john at gmail.com. Or you can leave an audio message for us and possibly hear yourself on a future episode by visiting anchor.fm slash ytmj slash message. Until next time, be sure to displace the guilt and embrace the pleasure and shout to the world, yo, that's my John. John.